my guest Peter Bogosian and I discuss how today's academia denies critical thinking skills to students. This cartel of faculty and professors teach their own ideologies as a new kind of gospel. And this is the new world religion called social justice. It spread from English departments, literature departments in USA and Europe to the social sciences and humanities across the world. It's been exported to India, where it's the latest American fashion for someone to be seen as an intellectual and as a progressive. In the United States, this movement has co-opted the woke culture and the whole critical race theory is based on this uh, literary theory from the English departments and social studies. In India, the import of this has turned into the Breaking India movement. The whole business of minorities, the whole business of gender wars, the whole business of caste conflicts, based on this imported ideology, is taking India apart. And this is what I call the Breaking India forces. The question is, is America headed towards the Breaking America syndrome? That's the question. That's the question to be discussed. Has India been an incubator, a testing ground for these American theories, which are now boomeranging, coming back to America and haunting the United States? This is a provocative discussion. It's a back and forth conversation between equals, the philosopher Peter and the physicist, computer scientist Rajiv, talking like scientific people, using evidence and using logic to critique those who are denying evidence and logic-based thinking on American campuses. Join this conversation. I'd like to welcome Dr. Peter Borgesian to my show. He's a well-known philosopher in the United States, uh, arguing with uh, the extreme left liberal people. Uh, and I want to discuss what his arguments are, where he's coming from. And the reason I want to discuss with him is it reminds me of my own journey of having fights and arguments with similar people in the liberal arts, uh, where, where I, I, in my opinion, they're not very scientific and not very analytical. And when I heard his issues, it reminded me of the similar things that I've faced. So welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that, Rajiv. So Peter, uh, can you tell us about your recent resignation, why you did it and what were the circumstances? Thanks. Uh, the, the, so the reason I stepped away from that, <clears throat> or to put it more bluntly, the reason that I resigned was because I felt that it, I, I couldn't do what I was hired to do, which was to teach philosophy, critical thinking, within the domain of philosophy, critical thinking, ethics, science and pseudoscience, etc. And I had to maintain my integrity I could, I was always feeling like I was stepping on eggshells or I couldn't say certain things in the classroom or I was constantly brought up for one investigation or another. And so I resigned and, and frankly, um, Rajiv, that's, it's been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted I can sleep at night. Um, it's been a wonderful decision. So I, I read, I saw your resignation letter, which is public and now a topic of discussion. So I just want for the benefit of the audience who might not know, uh, some of the things you said, uh, are, I'll just quote and then, then you react. Sure. So you said students are being trained to mimic the moral certainty of ideologues, uh, faculty right. and administrators, and I'm uh, paraphrasing, faculty and administrators have abdicated the university's truth-seeking mission. This has created a culture where students are now afraid to speak openly and honestly. Students refuse to engage with different points of view. Questions from faculty at diversity training that challenged the approved narratives were instantly dismissed. Mm -hmm. So it means there's a very closing of the mind. New values yeah. sound wonderful like diversity, equity, inclusion, but might actually be just the opposite. The Correct. primary source material produced by critical theorists reflects the postulates of an ideology, not insights based on evidence. And finally, right. the thing that really got to me, which reminded me of my situation was, it said, I was not allowed to render my opinion about, quote, protected classes, unquote. So certain classes of people that are protected in the sense you cannot give your opinion about them. They are just sort of beyond, uh, you know, critique. So these are, these are some of the comments you made. So what this, this is, a, in a nutshell, can we say your view is that this, quote, liberal 
arts, uh, you know, uh, academy uh, is not very liberal in, in the true sense of the word liberal. Yeah, that, that's a, a great phrasing. I like that because the moment you said liberal, I, my uh, little voice in the back of my head popped up. Many people on the left, excuse me, many people on the right are saying that the problem is with liberals. Uh, the problem is not with liberals. The problem is with illiberalism. And many of the people, in fact, I would argue that the, the overwhelming majority, certainly of my colleagues at Portland State University, were astonishingly illiberal in their attitudes and censorious in their, their uh, outlook. And so I don't think that the problem is with liberals. I think that the problem is that people have adopted illiberal attitudes. They don't value, they don't look at the university as a truth-seeking enterprise. They look at, at it more as a catechism, a, ca a Catholic kind of training and indoctrination factory. And th this is an incredibly serious problem on multiple levels, both for the students because they think they're, they're getting an education and they're certainly not, for the competitiveness or economic engines of the universities, for the kind of divisiveness that these critical theories and, and the broader suite of ideologies is teaching these kids. And they're growing up and they're, they're going into management positions and they're taking the nonsense that they've learned that's completely untethered to reality. It's purely ideological with them. For example, microaggressions, trigger warnings and safe spaces. Right. So um, you use the term idea laundering. Correct. Can you explain that? Because it's a very interesting term. Sure. So idea laundering, and <clears throat> after we did the grievance studies affair where we published bogus papers to show that the emperor has no clothes, we were talking to my friend Brett Weinstein about it, and we explained it to him, and he said, oh, you're idea laundering, and that was just a perfect term. So here's how it works. So everybody has a, a moral impulse about something. They, they, they feel something morally, and so if Academicians get together, people in the academy, professors who have similar or share their moral intuitions, they get together and they have a journal and they create a journal. And that journal has the same structure as any other journal. It has an editor, it, it has a peer review process, et cetera. They encourage people to submit their articles, which are basically their moral impulses to the journal. It goes through the peer review process and it comes out as knowledge. So it goes in as a moral impulse and it comes out as knowledge. And consequently, when you ask somebody, well, where is this coming from? What, how, are you, how are you coming up with the belief about, for example, microaggressions or, or fat studies, you know, that you can be healthy at every size? How, how, I don't understand when there's an overwhelming corpus of medical literature, obesity is dangerous. They will point to their ideas, to their journals, which are bogus, to the ideas that they've laundered in those journals as evidence for their moral claims. But it's not evidence. It's just these are the musings of ideologues that carry the trappings of ideological, of, of um, scholastic rigor. So many years ago, when I faced this, I coined the term peer review cartel. Yes, hundred uh, percent. That's terrific. In a, in a debate, in a debate with Vijay Prashad, an Indian guy who is in the in this area, he was my opponent. And so, what I said is that the peer review is, is actually a is, hoax. Is, is, wait a second. Is, is Prashad, was he the guy at OHSU? Uh, he was in uh, Trinity College. Is he? Did, I think I know him actually. Uh, I think I was supposed to do a lecture with him. So, so that's interesting. So you, you coined the term peer review cartel. Yes. Because the, yeah, explain that to me, please. So, so the term, which actually he found intriguing, even though we were opposing each other in that debate, but I, he, he found it intriguing. And that uh, debate is still publish, published online somewhere. The term said that there's a cartel of people who are not really independent. So I, I'm a professor, I, my paper goes to a, for a peer review, but chances are they know me, even though it's a blind review, but you know, they can read the stuff, they can read the bibliography, they can tell it's my article. And right. th 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 there's a very small number of people who are ultra specialized on a given topic. So if it's a particular topic which affects things like, you know, we talked about women in villages in some place in India, there'll be a very small, small handful of people. And, and the senior scholars, who control that discourse, they all know each other. 
and and their students are trained so it's kind of a lineage there's a there's an there's a institutionalization of knowledge so you le learn from your professor you learn to think from the, like them so there's a small coterie of people uh, who are ultra specialized in a topic and so any anything that uh, is, on, is on that topic goes to somebody in that cartel i call it the cartel so there is really no independent thinking that's the concept i had that they're really all sort of closing ranks ideologically yeah and that's the problem isn't it i mean the problem is that ideas don't get into journals if they're not morally fashionable what's morally fashionable will get in and people have tried to get around this like the australian philosopher peter singer created a, a journal co-created one called the journal of controversial ideas the jury is still out on that. We don't know. We don't know about. They have had one issue so far, I believe. We don't know how successful that would be, but the problem is still the same. That <clears throat> the journals are subject, just like every you and me and everything else, we're all subject to the moral currents of the age. And the question is, it's not that. <clears throat> the question is not how can we rid this, but now that we're aware of this, what can we do? to be more mindful about the kind of articles that we accept, specifically if they, they go against whatever the orthodoxy is. And right now we have pretty specific orthodoxies of things that simply cannot be questioned. And the problem with that is you people, academicians won't be able to get papers published in those journals. And if they don't get papers published in those journals, two things happen. One, the ideas that they have never gained traction. So public policies aren't based on those ideas. But um, more importantly, if more immediately, I should say, they don't get tenure because to get tenure, you need seven papers in several, seven years. And so the system itself, the cartel, pushes a kind of ideological conformity. And it's not like this is a conspiracy. It's not like people are getting together conspiring to do this. It's just the nature of the beast. This is just what it is. Yeah, you know, uh, about 20, 25 years ago when I faced this, uh, there was a hoax uh, uh, similar to the one you did uh, in publishing the article. It's called Sokol Sokol. Yes, Sokol Sokol. a friend of mine. Yes, yes. So I got to know him. He's a mathematician. And he yes. put out an, uh, an article uh, uh, which the postmodernists loved because he talked about how everything is relative. And this is the latest discovery in quantum mechanics. All these things right. we still love to hear. <laughs> there is no absolute truth. There is no grand right. narrative. You know, right. they, so so they, they loved it. And then after they had published it, he said the whole thing was flawed and a hoax. Right. None of it's all BS. And so they but they, you know, in his case, because he was in the mathematics department, they could not they could not harm his career because he was out of bounds in a sense. Right. Because he did not right. belong to the same discipline as the postmodernists right. themselves. So right. uh, but he became a bit of a hero in this. And I really loved it. So I want to I want to uh, also tell you that in my in my encounters, I, I had to face people like Homi Bhabha at uh, uh, Harvard, uh, Gayatri Spivak, uh, all these Derrida people, Foucault people, uh, all of these uh, people from the, uh, the, the whole postmodernist era. But so I started right. looking at uh, how the study of India, which is called South Asian studies in, in the United States, how it has been taken over by this kind of logic or this lack of yeah. logic. And I call it the five waves, the five waves after India's independence. Mm. Before that, it was all colonial stuff. But after independence, and I want to give you the five waves quickly and get your, your comments on Please. it. The first Please. wave was Marxism uh, that came to India after independence. The second wave was uh, post uh, this uh, uh, post-colonial theory with, right. uh, with this uh, Edward Said writing his famous right. uh, Orientalism book uh, in the 70s. So post-colonial, so the critique of the colonizer and so on became fashionable. And as long as you were doing that, you'd get your PhD, you would get into committees, right. you'd, you'd get into chairs. Then it right. became subaltern studies. So that was the study of right. history from below. So all the disenfranchised, right. all the people who Spivak, are yeah, yeah. The, the people who could be called victims. So this uh, people went looking for victims and they would get victims. The victim didn't have to have any they, uh, any verification. There was no due diligence. As long as the per person sounded like a victim and it could be made very emotional that this guy has been, uh, you know, whatever something wrong happened, then it would be taken at face value. So people would literally go and look up victims, fly them somewhere as evidence, 
and this would be sort of subaltern studies and all right. kinds of new histories were created new kinds of idea ideas were created in subaltern studies and then came the wave of postmodernism where the whole thing became relativized there is no author the author is dead this whole right. business that there is when you when you review when you read a, a a text a classical text it doesn't matter what the intention was because the people are mm -hmm. dead so you can superimpose anything you want it can be your truth versus my truth versus somebody's truth so this whole moral relativism and then came this thing uh, which i called uh, neo orientalism which is very interesting because it's the study of sanskrit as a classical language and the sanskrit classical texts not from the point of view of what those texts are, have traditionally been uh, uh, how they've been interpreted but looking at it from this whole postmodernist lens mm, so exactly. kind of kind of taking apart deconstructing all the narratives of a civilization all the narratives of their heritage uh, from a very relativistic moral relativistic point of view which means that you can say just about anything you want i mean there is no right. and as long as you have enough um, cartel behind you uh, that right. is the truth and so uh, you, and, and it's not subject to logical argument because uh, if you That's if correct. you argue if you argue logically they'll say that you're part of the hegemony uh, you are you're representing the hegemony and and so uh politically you are on the wrong side so this has been my experience and i wanted to know how you feel about it because i felt that all of these waves are imported from the united states none of these theories came out of india marxism post colonial studies uh, subaltern postmodernism etc none of them were products of indian social sciences there were there was nothing original about them people would come to the united states get a prestigious degree from an ivy league go back to india they would be looked in awe as some you know gods that have come and they had brought this knowledge so they became they became like the franchisors building right. a whole franchise of in, uh, people in across india who are taught this for the last two generations so indians have basically become colonized by literary theory that's a fascinating concept that indians have become colonized with people who are preoccupied with decolonization. Yes. Um, yeah. So I was familiar with everything you said up into the last piece about Sanskrit, but that's fascinating. The, um, the idea that it's now interpreted through a postmodern lens. And so if you look at, you know, you mentioned Spivak and Ken, the famous piece, Ken the Sub Subaltern Speak, I will say one thing in their disregard for analysis and argument that paper is one of the most dense gibberish filled things I've ever read as I find all yes. of Spivak. Um, yes. And Dan Dennett related a story that Foucault told him when he asked why, Dan Dennett is a philosopher in the United States at Tufts, when yes, he asked yes. why the, the many postmodern authors write in obscurantist language. And Foucault told him, you just won't be taken seriously if people understand everything you write. About 25% of it has to be uh, no, no, nonsense. I, can't, I don't think, I don't, can't remember if you used the word nonsense, but so there's something else within that, embedded within that structure of a way of presenting material that lacks the, not just the epistemological rigor, but the analytical rigor to which an outside observer could sit and look at it and say, okay, I got it, I make sense. So what you said. So there's a lot. What you, uh, there's a lot of what you said in there. Uh, again, I'm uh, genuinely apologetic for disgraceful um, cultural export. The the question is, I think one question is the question of motivation. Why are these folks doing this? Beside the fact that they've either latched on to what they think is their subjective truth, you know, small t. Uh, or the fact that they wish to disrupt dominant systems and dominant cultures and what that means for them. And so, so I'll push back and I'll ask you a question, something that came up, what I was thinking about. So if one of the goals of critical race theory and uh, any kind of critical studies in general is to disrupt hierarchies, to flatten the privilege curve, if you will, do you think that critical theory would be a uh, useful in the concept of disrupting the class system, the caste system. Well, okay, we'll come to that. It's, a, it's a, that itself is a, a topic of uh, um, uh, interpretation and misinterpretation, and I definitely want to address this. So the the first the point you discussed is what would be their motive. 
most of them, most of these guys in India, they come from very privileged families. They, they make no no absolutely, and, and and they are among the elite. They are among the you know high and mighty. And they in India they show off how much they've been uh, rewarded in the West. They come as sort of like the, the 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 honorary white who's arrived in India. And so because of the colonial complex, the Indians have a they suffer from this whiteness complex that the Europeans are superior people. So it used to be the British. Now it's the Americans. So they come in, and the more they can show that they are bringing something American. American, whether it is pizza or Burger King in the product mm. side, or it's knowledge, and this knowledge is sort of the latest fashionable thing, and it was it was published in some American journal, and it's got right. the stamp of Harvard. So I think one of the motives is it gives them an aura of pres uh, of uh, prestige, uh, mm. the, uh, of of uh, being looked at as some kind of a the next best thing to being the real American is the Indian who's kind of like American. The, the brown-skinned American is sort of the next best thing. So there is, a, there is a way these guys have positioned themselves and marketed themselves in India. Regarding this, uh, this, this, uh, this business of, uh, uh, I, and I'll come to the issue of uh, dismantling hierarchies. Of course, of course, that's a good idea. That's the short answer, but I want to discuss it in more detail. When, when, the, uh, when the British left, the study of India got transferred across the Atlantic to the United States. And right. what used to be called Indology became known as South Asian Studies. And the United right. States government played a role in this, the CIA and the FBI. There was the Ford Foundation. There were meetings in University of Chicago in which they said, the British Empire is dead. How do we control this third world? Somebody has to keep an eye on it. So this business of, uh, it was called Title VI. Title VI grants were set up for the study of the former third world in those days. So this was a project This kind of, to, to continue the uh, British study of India in, in a new Americanized way was a kind of a project. And it was decided that we sh they should bring in a lot of well-educated Indians to do this job. So the, because when Indians are doing this job, it looks more authentic. So there was a motive from the US side also, a kind of a pseudo imperialism, if you will, uh, and, and from the Indian side, the people who sold out into this or who, who, got, who became scholars in this area had a, it was a nice career. You could get a cushy job. I mean, I have, I know such people in Princeton University, in Harvard University. The interesting thing is that the average person in India does not know about them, does not care about them, does not read their stuff, cannot understand their stuff. Yeah. They're talking to each other. They've created mm -hmm. a, they've created a cabal of Hundreds of people, I would say by now it's a few thousand. Because yes, a cabal is a great word. That's exactly what it is. It's a cabal. So, so yeah, so, so their motive is not like they are, they've given up some prestigious elite lifestyle and gone out and worked some poor people in the villages and all that. They haven't really done that. So their, right. their motive is it's like a nice cushy career. They've occupied the, the vacuum left when the British were gone. There was this vacuum of ideological power, which these guys took over. So it is, in a sense, hypocrisy because that's exactly what postmodernism is supposed to deconstruct. Postmodernism is supposed to deconstruct power structures, but they are the power structure. If right. postmodernism is supposed to be against grand narratives, but the right. postmodernists themselves have created a critical edition. They've got there is something called the critical edition of postmodernism. So it's a it's like they've replaced one grand narrative with another. Now regarding this, your comment about uh, you know writing gibberish. This is so common. You look at Homi Baba. People have written papers like, does Homi Baba understand what Homi Baba writes? People have written like that. <laughs> Basically challenging. And, you know, I, I have challenged him for the last 25 years that I would love to come to any oh, forum, brilliant. any forum anywhere. Oh, my God. That is a you brilliant, know? that would be a brilliant hoax paper. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. So, go ahead. You know, uh, uh, yeah. And I, I have challenged these guys. I'll come anywhere, any forum, anytime. Uh, any uh, honest forum and debate you read out your stuff you read out from your quotation quote from your books and want to understand what exactly are you trying to say and what is your basis for right. saying it so there is right. there is uh, there is that kind of a thing uh, now now i want to address the question of uh, using these uh, using this deconstruction postmodernist or any kind of deconstruction to break right. down hierarchies okay social hierarchies I think that's a very important thing. Social hierarchies, when they come up, have to be broken, and that's a good idea. But this method is not really achieving that. The, this is part of the part of the conversation that the academic, uh, the this academic liberalism or pseudo liberalism, has entered 
politics in India. So mm. now, now see India and like the United States is a parliamentary democracy. So there's a there you can there are hundreds of parties in the right. United States because it's presidential. A small party will not get anything. It will not get any, a single senator. But in India, uh, because society is so uh, consists of so many communities, so many languages, so many parts of the country, that uh, and it's a parliamentary democracy with you know over 500 people in the parliament. So you can become you can become important if you go to a small community, and if you get all the votes of that little community in that area, local area, you can be one member of parliament, and that's your party. So this fragmentation. Uh, loves the idea. This fra fragmentation of politics goes hand in hand with subaltern studies. So when you can, mm -hmm. when you can take a community, subalternize them, turn them into victims, make them look like they're victims, uh, not necessarily helping them, but just getting their political support, and right. you can build a base for yourself. So a large part of the uh, so-called fight to liberate, you know, hierarchies and all that, is politically motivated because. When you look at the record of what these people have done, they've really not helped these people. They've really, they've really kept them in a ghetto because keeping them in a ghetto serves the political interests. That way you can keep getting their votes. They, they remain victims, they are angry, they remain victims, they keep supporting you, you stay in power. If you were to truly liberate them, truly get them educated, truly uh, level the playing field, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, then you'd be putting yourself out of work. So the, 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 the axis between academic ideologues and political parties in India is something that has not yet happened in the United States. I mean, in the United States, you don't have, you don't have these academic ideologues uh, you know, becoming congressmen or being on, an, uh, on the media all the time. The media doesn't, uh, you know, maybe they'll quote some professors for physics or somebody got the Nobel Prize in chemistry or something like that. But you don't see a Gaitri Spivak or a Homi Baba or any of these guys, Gyan Prakash or Princeton, being a sort of a viewed as a subject matter expert in the mainstream. But in India, that is true. In India, the academics from this liberal side have become big heroes in the media and they have become politicians. Uh, so they've started their own political parties. You find that on campuses, there are many, many political parties looking for votes from students. So the political dynamics and the intellectual dynamics have become unified in India. So a comment and a question, my comment sure. thinking about that is that if that were to happen in the US, I think that would expedite the decline of the empire. My, my question to you is, do you foresee that happening here? Yes. So what has happened in India, I call it the breaking India forces. And I call it, I call it the breaking India forces because I, I, I'm talking about ideologically fragmenting people into small camps for the purpose of fighting each other. Uh, for mm -hmm. the, and so that I can get the votes of this group by making it look like their enemy is that group. The fighting between minorities of one kind and minorities on, of another kind, uh, gender wars, uh, wars between uh, you know uh, the uh, a group of people of one religion versus another religion. This sort of a fashion, which is which is the heart of all this deconstruction and the heart of what this whole uh, victimhood uh, discourse is about. This is taking tearing uh, communities apart. This is tearing Correct. communities apart. And so so I, I call it the breaking India syndrome. This is that this syndrome is a breaking India syndrome. What, and what, I'm concerned that now there's going to be a breaking America. Let me, let me ask you, what is the access that's used? It's, it's not race. Is it socioeconomic? Is it yes. education? Yeah. Could, can you explain that to me, please? Yeah. So, so basically, what, 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 there are several types of fragmentation in India, several types of uh, criteria by which communities get uh, separated from each other and hostile to each other. They, they can be turned that way. One is regional language. So every state is a different language. And so if they have a territorial dispute over water, like in the South, there's a river and the states are competing over who has what, how much river. So that gets turned into a kind of an ethnic uh, thing that the, oh, the local see, yes. politicians can rabble rouse and turn it into an ethnic uh, you know, issue. Uh, that's one. The other issue Religion is- as well. I would religion, imagine. religion is a, a big thing. You see, the thing is, the thing that people in the United States need to understand is, uh, in the United States, 
the minorities are people who never had power over the majority. I mean, the minorities never had power over the majority. But in India, the Christians who are a minority used to rule India. Right. And the Muslims who used to, who are a minority used to rule India. Right. So the Muslims ruled for 800 years and they converted about 15, 18% of the people are now Muslims. And the, major, the rest of the Muslims are, were divided off into Pakistan and Bangladesh. So what was left of India is got 15, 20% are Muslims. And, right. and, and the, the British were never that successful in converting. So there's two to 4% are Christians. So the strange thing is India is the only country in the world where the minorities are, are former colonizers. Mm. So the interesting thing is that when we talk about decolonizing, they're not, the, 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 the Christian community in India would rather have the British because they have a conflict in that. They are ethnically Indians and therefore loyal to the, in the sovereignty of India. But they, are, they also remember the good old days of the British because then they were the privileged people. That's and, it's and totally fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is an anomaly that never people in the United States have never. And, and you know, you talk when I bring this up in the academy that can we talk about the minorities who were the who were the rulers? There is nowhere else in the world where you will find that the the ruling elite were from a foreign country. They were they were the, the, the Muslims came from the Middle East and the, mm. the, the Christians came from Europe and they were mm. the ruling elite for a very long period of time. During this Muslim rule, Persian was the official language. It was a foreign language imposed on India, court language mm. and foreign language. And the, and, and the privilege was with those who were Islamized, who were either Muslims or like Muslims culturally. And during the British era, the English was the official language. So that's why people like me are a product of the English language system. It's only about 200 years old that the English was imposed. So mm. in both cases, when we talk about decolonizing, what is politically incorrect to talk about is that we talk about minorities as protected as a protected class, but these minorities are also aligned with the colonization. I mean, they are a product of the colonization. And That's so this is something that nobody yeah. wants to, it's, it's very politically incorrect to talk about it. I talk about it, Good. but in the, you would expect that in the US Academy, where they're taking apart every little detail about you know, South Asia and whatnot, you, you would expect that there would be opportunity to have a panel discussion on this or present a paper and talk about where else, what, where else do people have this unique, uh, amazing experience that the people privileged with as minorities, there are quotas for education for these people. There are special job quotas. There are special laws protecting them. I support that. But when we talk about decolonizing the discourse, there is a conflict of interest. So this is this is something that I don't think exists anywhere else in the world. Yeah, when you were speaking, I was running through countries in my head, and if if it if it's true in the short term, it's certainly not true in, in the long term. It's another example, actually, of a. You mentioned that it's politically incorrect. I'd like to get your take on why that is. Uh, I I don't think that idea even even if it were well substantiated by facts and evidence would get accepted by any journal. And I think, why do you think that it, that's politically incorrect? Well, I think that, uh, you know, what is now being called wokeism in the United States uh, and in India, this whole, whole pandering to, uh, you know, subaltern, any, any group that can make enough noise and say we are victims will get, a, uh, will be, some leaders will come to kind of coalesce their votes, give them some political power, get, get a couple of seats in parliament, uh, give them a voice, and then start making cases that there ought to be some quotas for them, R certain number of seats in the universities should be reserved. So, you know, India is very interesting that by law, not by a choice of a university or a corporate entity or anything, but by law, certain amount of positions have to be reserved for and the whole hierarchy of communities are named. So uh, it, all it takes is enough rabble rousing, enough litigation, enough uh, noise, and you can get your community listed as somebody that is entitled to, it's kind of an entitlement system. So when you have this system of entitlements, you know, it, there is no, this kind of a thing is not dismantling prejudice. Right. This is not dismantling 
you know, hierarchies and uh, schisms among people in different groups. It, in fact, it's keeping that fight going because there are people who, are, who have a vested interest in keeping this fight going. And so this is, a, this is an important discussion that it, it, I found in the last 30 years impossible to bring into the American Academy. And here I will want to ask you, why do you think that people from India who are this liberalism kind of kind have so much clout also in the United States? Because I find them. I, I find them in, in the, all the prestigious places. There are people from India who are of this ilk. And, and uh, you know, they are they have marketed themselves in the United States as the voice of India. Because right. the average white guy doesn't know any better. He says, oh, this guy has an Indian name and he looks Indian and he can talk Indian stuff and tell you all that, you know, dressed like Indian. So he must be the authentic voice. <laughs> but, but the point is that these guys back home, they, I mean, the their books are only published in English. Whenever they have tried to translate them into Indian languages, those books fail, which mm -hmm. is a very good barometer. Because if, if, if English media is like 5% of the, of the published works and the newspapers, the circulation for English is like 5%, the rest of it is a whole lot of different languages. And the fact that the, the people who talk about, who are championing India in the United States and who are considered the heroes of India, they can only publish in the English press in India because nobody else will read it. Whenever they've tried translating uh, these kind of people, they, they fail. Yeah, so, I'd, li I'd, like, I'd like to suggest uh, something to you, just as you suggested uh, words you've coined. I'd like to suggest a, a word for those people who come here uh, as representing the authentic voice of India. I would call them performatively authentic. <laughs> they're not actually right they're not yes. actually oh, that's a, that's that's clever yeah that's okay. clever i mean they're, they right. they they serve they play a role and they play it well so uh, you know it's the art of uh, convincing the the authorities and the establishment in the west that you are the right person to support from somebody some group in india because right. you will represent them here and you will sing you will dance to their tune uh, you know, you you will you will uh, you will basically dish dish out the postmodernist stuff about India that they are looking for because you know when the Indian comes and he come, he publishes in an article uh, some journal about the, some crit uh, critical race theory in India uh, or something it actually makes the American feel happy that this is a this is a universal theory that we've come up with because exactly. you have people from Africa you've got people from India. You got people from all these countries basically endorsing it and, and giving us right. examples. Which, which, of course, the irony is not lost on either one of us that these people don't believe in any objective um, moral values that are good for all. They're, they're relativists at core. And that runs, that idea itself uh, serves, it may, may serve them, it may serve them, excuse me, but it's against their own, the fundamental tenet of their own belief structure. So, I, and I fully agree with that. So one thing I mentioned where I think India is further ahead in terms of trouble compared to the mm -hmm. US is the politicization of this academic nonsense. It's entered electoral politics. And maybe in the United States, it's about to enter electoral politics. Maybe you already have some fringe in the Democratic Party who are like that. Uh, and, 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 but it is not mainstream. I mean, you have some people who are kind of ideologues uh, and you cannot reason with them. You cannot give logic and argue a point. They just sort of keep pandering to a certain emotion, uh, a certain moral kind of premise. And, and yeah. that's how they are. Yeah. The, the, one, one of the reasons that you can't reason with them is they don't value reasoning. Reasoning and yes. evidence only works if you start with the assumption that you should value reasoning and evidence. And yes. many of these, these ideologues have explicitly repudiated the idea that reason and evidence can get you to the truth because they don't believe in objective truth. They believe in their lived experience. You know, it's part of standpoint epistemology. So even 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 science is a grand narrative. Now you asked uh, earlier about uh, about uh, this uh, business about uh, you know problematizing Sanskrit. Now there's mm -hmm. a professor Pollock, Sheldon Pollock in um, in uh, Colombia, and he's got a huge number of Indian followers, and he's a Sanskrit uh, professor of uh, tremendous acclaim. 
And he's come up with this theory that Sanskrit is patriarchal even uh, because, uh, and, and all the text should be seen in that way. And even the grammar and the very structure is patriarchal. So therefore you have to, you have to read Sanskrit texts with suspicion and tease out hidden meanings that were never there. I mean, you have to look for right. hidden meanings and right. so this love, business of, I, yeah well I, I love what you said before but the, even thinking that way is a way that the american university has colonized the indian mind right even, even thinking yes. in that way is a form of yes. colonization yes yes so this is a more more dangerous colonization than the, i think the american colonization of india is worse than the british because british was blatant yeah. british was physical level they came to plunder they came to do all this stuff but, you know, we knew the people in India, my grandparents' generation and before, they knew that, okay, these are conquerors, they're in controlling us, and we are the ruled people, and, you know, they're colonized us. Now, the idea is the Americans are more sophisticated, and by hiring a large number of Indians to, in this enterprise and buying them out, uh, you know, they blurred this issue. And so it take, this is why they're very upset at a guy like me as a kind of a whistleblower pointing this out, that this, is, this whole thing is a hoax. So what we are calling liberal arts is actually a hoax. So, so I want to mention two other trends in India. One yeah. is that the Americanized liberal arts is now being set up in university campuses in India, one campus after another. And, and it has become a fashion. Previously, it used to be that the, this kind of an export of such knowledge to India was done with a few very senior people who came and studied here the Gayatri Spivak types and you know, a few dozen others, and they would go back, give lectures and train people. But now entire universities, liberal arts colleges are being set up. It's very fashionable to set mm -hmm. up an American liberal arts college in India and, and to bring this kind of a curriculum, which has no hard sciences in it, logic in it, hard philosophy. It's basically, it's basically all relativism and basically about victimhood and who's who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed and it's right. all bringing this kind of a politics into the into the university becoming very emotional and you bring in people who are supposed to be the victims and everybody else is supposed to be apologizing for their tradition right. for their culture so it's become a theater like that this is not serious education but this is what is happening in india the second thing i want to point out to you is this has entered the corporate world even in the United States. It's, oh, fashionable, it's fashionable to have a diversity board member. Every university, every, sorry, every corporation wants to have a diversity board member. I have a few Indians who are made a killing in the last five years because some of these big, biggest American companies want them and they'll pay them a huge sum of money to come and serve on the board. So the company can say, we got, a, we got somebody head of diversity. And so diversity is, while diversity is a good thing, but when you sit down and talk to them about this, the, the, the diversity board members that I've talked to are basically eating out of the hand from, from these academic people. So they're just sort of, they're not using their own brains. They're, they're, they're basically uh, just political correctness. And that becomes sort of the uh, show of diversity in the universities. What do you think of that happening to in the American corporate world where the problems you're facing in the universities are now also in the boardrooms of America? That's, there's no question that that's the case. <clears throat> what happens in the universities doesn't stay there. It leaks out. And I, I think it's important in this conversation to talk about what we mean by diversity. <clears throat> so the, the person, the type of kind of the archetypal Indian you, you had referred to about somebody who spouse, spouts postmodern platitudes, that's the kind of people that the corporations are taking. I'm thinking uh, Coke, Gillette, uh, basically almost any corporation one can think of at this point. And what they're looking for is not intellectual diversity, is not people like you or me, but it's people who spout a narrative, a very particular narrative, and that's the narrative espoused by people uh, in academia. And so what we, what we have is a system that starts in the academy, and we haven't even discussed um, schools yet, but it starts in the academy, it leaks out of the academy. Jordan Peterson, I think, uh, talks about five to seven, three to five years, sometimes seven, those people become managers and, and rise up and they bring these ideas with them. 
But I think it's really important to note one of the reasons that so many people are hoodwinked by this is because they don't understand the word diversity. Like you, you'll never see someone on a diversity panel. You'll never see, for example, a black conservative on a diversity panel. It doesn't because black conservatives aren't viewed as being diverse candidates, even though their skin is not white. So diversity in that sense is a code word for ideological homogeneity. And if the people happen to have different skin colors, well, then that's all the better. Right, right. So this is, so, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, so well, that, we, would you like to discuss more about where this whole uh, pseudo liberalism and literary theory, where it's going and as far as the academic world is concerned, where do you see at the centers of this and, and uh, how, what's, what's feeding it, what's fueling it, who funds it? Wow, those are big questions. Um, I keep thinking that it's gonna, it's gonna, people are gonna come to their senses because nobody likes living like this. Nobody likes not being able to say what they think. Nobody likes being held hostage to a mob or living in cultures of fear. No, nobody likes it. So I keep thinking that, boy, this, this, this has to have, I thought the expiration date was much sooner than what it's turning out to be. The problem is I, and I'll be very blunt with you, I have no confidence in the university system anymore. I think it's utterly irredeemable. And one of the reasons for that is because we have ideologues who are in positions, they have jobs for life, and they think, they, they believe that they have the right answers to moral questions. They're teaching that to students. They're testing students on that. And I think that a solution, rather than talk about blame, because I, don't, I genuinely don't believe the universities can be fixed. What I, I think we should start talking about is how to build better institutions. And because we need colleges, we need engines of knowledge production, we need economic to rely upon them for economic competitiveness and innovation. But there are new institutions that are emerging right now. And frankly, it's not very public yet, but I'm going to be part of one of those emerging institutions. And that institution is in Texas, in Austin specifically. And it's based upon the things that every truth seeker should want. Open inquiry, free speech, debate. Uh, if, if you don't like an idea or what have you, then you don't, you know, there's some shocking, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education has really shocking data about the number of people who think that speakers should be shouted down or even one in four students believe violence can, should be used against speakers if they don't like what they're saying. Um, but those statistics are, and I would encourage your, your viewers to look at those if you want to take, if you want to really understand how bad things have gotten in the university. And the other thing to understand is that this is, it's not a bug of the system. This is a feature. This is the goal of what people are teaching. And they're teaching a kind of intolerance. And intolerance comes with with um, when, when someone has such moral certainty, certainty in their ideas, they're simply not willing to engage other ideas. So I think part of this is less to talk about blame and more to start for parents to think about sending their, their kids to emerging institutions that value truth, reason, rationality, epistemic adequacy, scientific skepticism. And if we can move people toward those institutions and towards those uh, toward places where they can flourish intellectually and thrive. I think that's the solution, at, at least uh, at least in the, the short term, probably in the long term. So do you feel that one of the issues will be students will say, I need a job. And I go to this prestigious liberal arts oh. place and, and, and I got a job waiting for me at Facebook or, or wherever. Google or wherever, whatever the fashion is of the day. Right. Whereas if I go to this new place, uh, you know, it also, I think what I'm saying is it's also incumbent on the employers to, it's in the employer's best interest to bring smart people who can think for themselves. And, you know, right. when I used to run businesses, I, I had 20 companies at one time in different <laughs> countries in, in technology. So I found that sometimes a person with a prestigious degree from a great university, well-known university, was not that smart in able, being able to think on their feet and be very logical. And often I found that there were people who were self-taught, very, very smart, right. you know, 
and, and able to reason logically, come up with plans, strategies, evaluate, change the, you know. Yeah. So I, I, I realized very quickly that I have to find people and evaluate them for myself and not really re expect the university system to have graded them in a way that I would trust. But yeah, I think most employers, most HR departments don't do that. Most HR departments like to say that they've got so many people out of these nice universities and they've done their job. This is, I think, a part of the problem. I find it fascinating that you brought that up. I'm on a back channel with some very high level people at major tech corporations. And one of the things that they're talking about is simply looking at where someone went to school and then just not hiring them. So if they went to a university that's particularly woke, they don't want them to import their nonsense. They don't want them to crumble at, at the first sign of, of things. So they simply don't hire them. The problem is that they can't say that uh, publicly because many of their employees are already woke. I mean, look at what's happening at Twitter. Look at what's happening at Facebook. Look at what's happening at all the major media companies. Employ their employee, the people at the top aren't woke, but their employees are woke and they have a kind of fear of those employees. And I know these people. So I've met, I've met with these kind of tech gurus and I hear the same complaint over and over again. And one of the ways that they're trying to address that right now is just simply not hiring people who came from certain schools. And those, the names of those schools are rather shocking. So again, I think that the moving forward, the way to think about this is not we, we shouldn't spend one more instant complaining about this. We should, we should be building things. That's what we should be doing. And we should be having, we need a place where we can trust not only the institutions and the education people receive, but the way they got that. We need new, like, again, I mentioned Peter Singer's journal, or we need ways in which we can train people to think about issues clearly and critically and how to be conscious. And because you're never going to eliminate your own bias altogether, but you can understand the role that bias plays in the thought process. But we also need to train people to stand up to the mob. We need, need to train people in the Greek virtue of parhesia, which is speaking truth in the face of danger or being forthright in your speech. And we've also lost that. So uh, the other thing that we need to think about when we build these new institutions is we need to think about um, <clears throat> creating two structures around them. One is, as you know, as you're, you're a, a renowned scientist, one is disconfirmation. That is, we seek to disconfirm, not to confirm. The people in gender studies, anything ending in studies, they see, those journals seek to confirm ideas they already have. They're not, they don't have a process of disconfirmation. The other thing that they don't do at all is they don't value revising your beliefs. And they don't value revising your beliefs because they, uh, they think they have the truth. So we need to, these new institutions have to have disconfirmation and belief revision at their core. And if you do that coupled with open inquiry and freedom of speech, I think that you're, you have to create these models from scratch. That's what I'm excited about. And so as we move forward, and I would suggest to you, as you move forward, think about, you know, investing in these institutions, but what I think we shouldn't be doing is complaining about the old world, legacy institutions, legacy, um, uh, at le legacy academies. Those things will die a death of their own. And we need to talk so about I, building. So this is a great uh, conversation I want to have with you, how we can all work together, because I want to be part of this. But before I go to that, I have one more point, one more topic I want to discuss, and that is sure. how... Artificial intelligence is making the problem worse because now you have algorithmic bias. You have, you have these pre preconceived ideas that are stuck in, that have been put in algorithms. And I come from an AI background. I just wrote a book on artificial intelligence and the future of power. By the way, I'd mm -hmm. like to send you a copy afterwards. I would love uh, that. This is a, be this is a book on, on how AI is shaping the discourse on, on power and how it's going to create, uh, you know, new haves and have-nots. There could be new colonization. All of that kind of stuff could happen due to AI. So it's a 500 page. I'd love to read that. Have your yeah, I genuinely love so, to read that. So this, this uh, uh, algorithmic bias, this uh, woke algorithms, uh, what has happened is that now the algorithms uh, are looking for evidence. This kind of our discussion might get blocked. Who knows? I mean, right. I've had, uh, there are, there are, there are uh, when you challenge something uh, and, and the algorithm has a list of what is sacred, what to promote, what to reject, what to, you know, and, and so 
and they keep tweaking, they keep turning the dial more or less on different ideas. So this business of, uh, there was always bias in media, but now with algorithms, it's, it's a different scale. Now an algorithm can scan billions of posts a day, uh, right. which human beings would not be able to do. So I want you to reflect on the, 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 uh, the, the fact that there's artificial intelligence and people who made these algorithms have also put some of their own prejudices inside them. Uh, right. And algorithms also want to play back what you what you want to see. So a viewer, they, they're very good at saying, okay, they, figuring out this viewer likes to get reinforced ideas. And so they keep playing those reinforced ideas. So in a sense, they want more time from you because if they have, if you have more time on Facebook, they can sell more money and make more advertising revenue. Uh, so it's not about truth. It's not about free speech. It's about what will sell. So, so a combination of preconceived algorithmic bias and uh, the, the, the chasing the money, chasing the dollars, going where whatever will manipulate the viewer into spending more time, uh, even if it's just nonsense. So what are your thoughts on the fact that it could be that AI is making our problem worse? Well, yes. I haven't read your book, obviously, and I'm looking forward to it. Eli personally talks about that as a filter bubble where we increasingly live in uh, bubbles and algorithms feed us what we want to see. So th there are many things there. There's that concept. There's the idea that if, you know, my, my friend Brian Keating, who wrote the wonderful little book, I just finished Into the Impossible, and he has, was on his podcast. Brett Weinstein, my friend Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying were just on his podcast and not only do, do you hear about things getting demonetized, but you, you actually talk about the videos being taken down or not having people not having access to that. And another uh, uh, friend, uh, Tim Poole, his TikTok just got closed. But many people, many people have gotten shut down. So we have many, we have multiple problems. We have the problem of, or Trump, for example, Trump got kicked off of Twitter, but yet the Taliban folks have <laughs> the Taliban right. have Twitter <laughs> accounts. So, so there's certainly some, some woke madness in there. And that also goes to speak to the fact that people within these companies and corporations themselves are woke while the people aren't at the top aren't woke. And you're right, we do write our own biases into these. The question that interests me is cognitively what this does to the society. I mean, it certainly seems obvious that it splits us. It, it, it deepens our schisms and divides and how we get past that as a problem. The other thing that that's a problem is that um, it makes us less, it makes us more certain that we're, we, that the beliefs we hold are true. So for example, when you go to Google or when you're fed certain videos, like I, I'm always, uh, I'm always, I was just watching, um, I can't remember if it was Hulu or Netflix yesterday. And I was just struck by, I watch a little TV uh, before I go to bed. I find it very relaxing and I, I play games on my phone. I, I need it because I work really hard in the day. But anyway, so, so I was, um, was always struck by how unbelievably accurate the, the, um, the algorithms are. So they would, they would uh, show me films that I had loved, but not seen on their platform, but they thought that I hadn't seen those, those films. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a good thing. And it's probably a good thing to an extent if it happens on Amazon. But the problem is when you talk, talking about spilling into the domain of, of moral things, moral ideas, moral thoughts, spilling into the domain of political ideas. And we then tend to increase our confidence in things because we're not shown the other side of the issue, right? That gets back to what I spoke of before of the importance of disconfirmation. We want to, we, we should be open at the very least, not even just open, but we should actively seek out things that don't confirm our pre-existing worldviews. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a tremendous problem. I don't frankly know people have suggested things like, well, go down to the 15th search result on Google to try to mitigate some of those effects of uh, algorithmic bias. I don't know if that's the solution. You know, it's the vast majority of people aren't going to go out of their way and seek out podcasts and shows that don't agree with their worldview. In fact, quite the contrary. And that's one of the reasons they post on social media is to put their worldview out there and gain favor with their tr tribe and have everyone say, yes, yes, you're right. They don't post to be refuted. But just parenthetically in the Gorgias, Plato says that 
it is better to be refuted than it is to, to refute. And the idea there is if you're refuted, you can come closer to the truth. Whereas if you refute someone else that doesn't improve your epistemic or cognitive situation. So I think you're absolutely correct in that. Um, I don't, I personally don't know what to do about it though. So that's a topic of great interest and further conversation. I would love to. Uh, so what I want to ask you is how do I join these conversations and these initiatives? Because I, I gave the for profit, I gave up the for profit world 30 years ago in right. order to spend all my time pursuing free thought, open inquiry, whatever was whatever were the problems of the day I wanted to solve, I wanted to get involved in, and, and also channel some investments and funding to into nonprofit initiatives purely for helping the world, helping. Uh, and I found I first my story is very interesting. I first started by funding chairs in Harvard and Columbia and Princeton, and I decided this is all wrong because you're feeding the uh, you're feeding the wrong people. They're right. not going to change just because you give them a nice chair or something like that. They're going to do the same, it's more of the same thing. So I stopped that. In, fa in fact, I started arguing with them. And then I, I started funding some conferences of my own here and there on various topics. And that had some interesting results. So then I started writing my own books. So now I'm at a stage, you know, I'm 71 and I'm at a stage where I'm looking for things that will continue in terms of the quest for freedom of thought and uh, people who are radical thinkers, people who are contesting, who are taking a contrarian. I'm particularly interested in people taking a contrarian view because I think the world as it's headed towards uh, in the future right now has got serious problems. So we need some good, smart contrarian people who, who are af not afraid to break ranks and but who have very intelligent arguments, good data, and who, who are not who don't have a problem with somebody taking them on and doing due diligence on their ideas because that's that's what makes it very exciting. And I'm a researcher. Uh, I, I feel I'm a very innovative person in the scientific sense. So I want that. So what are some of the initiatives? And maybe this is a conversation you and I should have, uh, because I would like to know what are the things that people who are free thinkers from all kinds of backgrounds all over the world uh, who have had this problem with the this liberal arts, wokeism and all that, how do such people come together and do something useful for the future? I and mean, that's that's what I'd like to be part of. Yeah. So let me say I have tremendous respect for the fact that that's what you want to do and the fact that you care so much about humanity. And that just comes from the bottom of my heart. That's that's just exactly what, what I would hope that that attitude would spread. So I can connect you directly with the people I'll be. So as I think this is the first time I've said this publicly, uh, I'll be the first um, founding faculty fellow of a new institution. Um, and there are people on the board of that institution that are very, that are heavyweights um, and that um, I trust their stewardship and I trust them and I've, I've met with them before. Um, and I, I genuinely um, believe that this is what we need to do to move forward. We need to train people to, um, to, we need to give people the analytic tools and the attitudinal disposition to know that it's okay to take a stance that's unfashionable or against your tribe, or in fact, not only is it a good thing, but you should always, um, love of the truth should always be your North star. You know, that's what philosophy means, the love of wisdom. So I can absolutely, after this podcast, connect you with them. Wonderful. So we'll keep the discussion going. Uh, uh, do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, you have the final word and then we close. Well, I, I want to thank you for the conversation. Um, I, I was familiar with your work before we, we spoke. And, and I have found that what I've read from what you've written has been very honest and it's, it's been very forthright. And that's something that we're in short supply of right now. And I also want to thank you very sincerely for supporting me. It was a big leap into the unknown that I took. And I could not, I really couldn't do that unless I had the encouragement and moral support of other people. So I just like to say that I'm incredibly grateful for your support. Wonderful. And, you know, I'm very proud of people like you. It takes a lot of courage. It takes it, uh, you know, it takes a, uh, it, because to do something contrarian, it's like an uphill battle. Uh, and I, I lost friends, by the way, I'll tell you for the last 30 years, I lost friends. I had relatives saying, why are you doing this? Uh, why do you need to go on arguing and fighting? Just live the good life. You earned it. You work very hard. But this is what I enjoy doing. 
So when I meet a kindred spirit like you, I'm really happy and encouraged. So I want to uh, I want to thank thank the audience for watching this. I, please look up uh, Peter's uh, websites and his, uh, his his various debates and discussions. And we'll have Peter back. We'll do more of these uh, in in the forthcoming weeks. Thank you very much, Peter, for your time. And let's stay connected. Well, well, thank you. That, that truly means a lot to me. I've been so touched by how many emails I've received from people all over the world. I mean, ten, I mean, I can't tens of thousands at this point, just pouring in from everywhere. And so, you know, that again, reinf re absolutely reinforces, even though I don't know what my future is going to be, that this was the right decision that it just struck a chord with so many people. I mean, so many people have, there's no way I could possibly get back to all these emails. They've shared their stories with being run out of the academy or told certain things that, you know, if they ask questions and it, I, I'm, just, I'm just so struck by it. Um, Thank you for watching. You can subscribe here and also hit the bell icon to make sure you get notified. To donate, please click this button.